Now let us turn together this evening to the scripture reading, a portion for the evening service in John, John's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 5 through 17. John's Gospel, chapter 15, 5 through 17, where we read these words of Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed, my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. May God once more bless to us that reading from his most holy and inspired word. Now, will you also turn in your Bibles, and particularly so, to the epistle of First John, this evening, uh, concerning which we are commencing a number of Sunday evening services, expositions. You'll find First John well on, past Hebrews, and the letters of Peter, and then the first, second, and third epistles or letters of John. Now, after the long series on Sunday evenings through the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith as we have reviewed it continually in the light of Scripture, it is a very wonderful and refreshing change uh, to turn to this lovely letter of John, the first of three letters that he wrote, and by God's grace and in his providence to plan together a series of studies in the great themes that center upon the Christian life, the themes of fellowship and the love of God and walking in the light of God's commandments and many other rich and in a true sense suggestive themes of the Christian life. 
Now let me say this evening, therefore, a number of things by way of introduction before, as time permits, we come to the central part of the exposition this evening on the tests of true Christianity. Now let me begin this evening by saying that whoever commences a study of the first letter of John the Apostle is in for much searching of heart. There is no question that it is a most practical part of God's word that deals very vitally with the tests of true Christianity and what constitutes living a Christian life. And yet I must also say this evening that not only will this be a very humbling and searching experience for our hearts, but I truly believe that we will be enraptured and enthralled together by what we find in this rich and lovely portion of God's own word. Light and life and love Within the fellowship of God's people are certainly the great themes of this letter. And as I've studied in these previous weeks for the preparation of this series, I've come across many titles that could be suggested for a series of expositions through First John, and I've chosen what I feel to be the one that most accurately reflects the great purpose for which this letter was written, the fellowship of light and love. And the emphasis is upon the fellowship that is the key to the whole understanding of this wonderful part of the scriptures. Now let me also say by way of introduction that this is a very unusual New Testament book. In the beginning and the ending of it, you will notice it is unusual. If you turn to John, uh, the letter of John, chapter 1, verse 1, we read that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And if you turn to the very end of the epistle in chapter 5, verse 25, in particular, I'm sorry, verse um, 20, I believe it is, you find similarly an unusual ending that takes up the very theme with which the book began. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Now, why I say it is unusual is that you must realize immediately that there is no other letter in the New Testament that begins and ends in that precise way. And as we begin our studies next Sunday evening, we will, I think, see the purpose of John's unusual greeting and his unusual conclusion. Moreover, it's unusual in that it's not addressed to one church like the letter to the Colossians or the Ephesians or the Philippians, but it is what we call a general epistle that evidently was designed to circulate among many of the early churches of the New Testament times. 
And also, it is probably one of the last parts of the New Testament to be written, we think, around the year A.D. 85 to A.D. 90, toward the very end of the first century, when it's clear that John is a very old man by that time, very probably the last survivor of the original apostolic band of eleven. And the emphasis, very fittingly, as we will notice in our studies, is on the fact that he had heard and seen and touched the very word of life. And there is something filled almost with pathos as we read those words and remember that here is an aged apostle writing, the very last of the apostolic band, the very last one who had known the Lord Jesus in the flesh. Now there are five books written by him, as you are well aware, I'm sure, the Gospel, the three letters of John, and finally the great book of Revelation itself, that single prophetic book of the New Testament scriptures. And you must realize, too, there is a particular link between the Gospel and the Epistle of John, that just as the Gospel of John was written in order that the unbeliever might come to faith in Christ, we know that from John chapter 20, verse 31, so the Epistle of John was written in order that Christians who are already in Christ might come to full assurance of their salvation in him. If you turn, for example, to chapter 5, verse 13, he makes clear what the purpose of his writing the first letter really is. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is therefore a complementary and parallel purpose in his writing the gospel and writing this first letter of John. Now, what is the purpose beyond that of confirming Christians in their faith? Well, it's clear from a number of references at which we'll look this evening that his other purpose is to set the gospel out as being the truth of God in the face of error. If you look at chapter 2, for example, verse 26, he's very conscious there of those in the world who are out to deceive Christians. Chapter 2, verse 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, those who would, in fact, deceive you. And you see, at the end of the first century, we need to remember that while the Gospels and many of the letters of Paul, in fact, all of them, were now in circulation, and the church was growing remarkably, the danger that it faced was no longer persecution from outside of the church, but it was error that had arisen within the church itself. And it is against that insidious rising up of error from within the brotherhood that this letter is written. And very probably, we believe, the background to the letter is that a particular heretical group had begun to come to infiltrate the church known as Gnostics. And those of you who are taking note 
this evening should spell the word capital G N O S T I C. Gnostic was the heresy, or Gnosticism was the heresy that had arisen. And there was a man we know from the records of the early church called Serinthus, who challenged the doctrines held dearly by Christians by saying that matter is not real, it is evil. And what matters is not matter or the material things of this world, but the spiritual. And this had the effect, as we're going to see this evening as we pursue our exegesis and our exposition, of in fact evacuating the incarnation of Jesus. The Gnostics taught that it was impossible that a spiritual person, the eternal Son of God, could possibly be united with a material body. They therefore denied the incarnation and went on in their teaching to deny the atonement of Christ, for it was inconceivable in their teaching that someone who was spiritual and of pure essence could possibly undergo suffering. And so as we'll see, they taught the strange doctrine that the real Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was united to him only at his baptism, not at his incarnation and conception. And the real Jesus left him before he went to the cross because it was inconceivable that a pure spiritual essence could suffer. Now, if you think about that for a moment, you find the two cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith without which it cannot possibly exist was be, were being denied by Gnostic teaching, the incarnation at the beginning of the life of Christ and the atonement at the end of the Christian revelation. And so you see, it was against that background of error that this epistle was formed and written. Now it leads us, and this is the final introductory comment this evening, to the basic argument of the, the epistle. Now listen carefully. What is the basic argument of this epistle? It is the argument of showing the truth of the gospel as the basis of all Christian experience and salvation and assurance, as opposed to the false teaching of those who belong to the party of the Gnostics. And it leads to the very heart of what I want to say to you, the summary of the message of First John this evening, that if true Christianity is to be in the world and to exist in the world, there must first of all be the test of the right belief of the truth. And secondly, there must be the test of a right obedience to God. And thirdly, there must be the test of a right love for one another. Now I challenge you this evening to read through these five chapters of the first letter of John in these coming weeks and months. Reread it again and you'll find that over and over and over again, first presented one way, then presented another way, are these three great tests 
of biblical Christianity, the theological test, adhering to the truth of the doctrines of the gospel, the moral test, living out those doctrines in obedience to Christ, the social test, the test of whether we truly live in fellowship and love with one another. Now, beloved, why did we read from John's Gospel, chapter 15, and not from this epistle this evening? Because the author is the same in both books. And because in John 5 through 15, verses 5 through 17, you have in concise compass the very same three tests of true Christianity. That if we love the Lord Jesus and follow after him, we are committed to walk in his truth. That if we love and serve him, then there is the moral test of being obedient to his commandments. If you love me, what did he say? Keep my commandments. And there is the social test, but living in the light of true doctrine and in the light of obedience to Christ in our moral lives, it will lead us to fulfill the great commandment that we should love one another. And so to these three tests of true Christianity, we begin in an introductory way this evening. And I want to focus your attention, first of all, upon what I've called the theological test. And I reference in particular chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 6. And we'll look at those texts as we look at this first point and this first head of the exposition this evening, the theological test. Let me put it to you this way. I'm sure that you have often been involved, even as a bystander, in debates about the Christian faith and about religion. We who are members of the presbytery often engage in such debates. Or you've read about Debates among denominations or at theological seminaries where the subject is Christian doctrine. And you may have heard several positions being very eloquently and persuasively set out before you. And as you've listened to one, you've thought, well, that's irrefutable. That's thoroughly convincing. And then you've listened to the second person make his presentation on the same issue. And that's led to consternation because that too seems irrefutable and very convincing also. And so it goes on. And in society today, to broaden the issue and the illustration, there are debates about many issues that concern ultimately moral and spiritual truth. For example, the debate about abortion or the debate about armaments or euthanasia whether the elderly should be allowed to live or to die with dignity, the debate about capital punishment. Is it biblical or is it barbarous? And in the church, in this congregation, what is the church's mission in the world? Is it primarily to preach the word of God as the saving counsel of the Most High towards sinners, or is it to engage in social activity mainly. 
And so we could go on. Now, why I mention this as an illustration is it anchors the truth of what I'm about to share with you in your mind. This is the situation that John takes us into, the theological test of true Christianity. This is the situation for which the book of John was written. And you see, the background, as I mentioned to you, is theological debate, doctrinal debate, consternation that has come into the church through the heresy of Gnosticism and its early champion who lived in the days of the Apostle John, a man called Serinthus, who taught that the creation of God was divided into spiritual and material. And the superior is the spiritual, and the inferior is the material and the physical. And this idea came into the church and led, as I said to you, to the denial of the possibility of the incarnation of the Son of God. It was impossible, according to this teaching, that the divine Son of God should have united himself in the virgin's womb with material a material body that according to this teaching is evil. And similarly, it is impossible that the divine Son of God should have endured suffering and shame upon the cross of Calvary. Therefore, said these Gnostics, the divine Son left Jesus before he went to the cross, and it was the human Jesus merely who died in agony, pierced upon the tree. Now, beloved, with that denial of the incarnation, God made man, and the atonement, the Son of God, in the worth of his infinite person, suffering for the salvation of sinners in place of these ideas, the Gnostics put salvation by knowledge. And that salvation was open to those of superior spiritual knowledge. And you begin to understand the dimensions of this fearful heresy that was beginning to come in like a flood into the early church. Now, mark you, there was something else to follow, as it always and inevitably will, that wherever you have theological or biblical error, it is accompanied inevitably by moral error as well. Because if the physical is irrelevant, the body is irrelevant, then the Gnostics began to teach that you can indulge yourself in all manner of conduct without any serious consequences. Very much like our amoral society today, where men believe that you can live as you like and you're accountable to nobody. Now what did this lead to? Gross immorality in the church. Spiritual pride. We are the people, said the Gnostics, with this superior knowledge of the division between the material and the spiritual and the awareness 
that we are saved by our superior knowledge. And it led to confusion, as I say, and consternation in the church. Think of it. The recipients of the letter of John were saying, should we follow them or should we follow him? Is it the Gnostics who are right? Or is it the beloved apostle John who is right? Is salvation by the cross? Or is it by gnosis, by knowledge? Is Jesus the Christ? Or is he merely a human being who was indwelt for a season by the divine Son of God who then left him and went back to the glory of heaven? Now look at chapter 2, verse 19. You see, some had already left the church, drawn away by this false teaching. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Why not? Because they had imbibed and believed the false teachings of Serinthus and the early Gnostics. Some stayed in the church. Look at 3 John verse 9. And they were a problem. The third letter of John Verse 9, that refers to Diotrephes, who has the preeminence, says John. And the reference almost certainly is to the fact that this man was a follower of the Gnostic teaching and believed that he was among the spiritual elite. We are the people, they said. And his presence was painful in the midst of the fellowship. And the question I drive home to your conscience this evening that the early Christians faced, the dilemma they were in, is who are we to follow? And that's where the beautiful emphasis of the first letter of John comes in. Now look back with me at chapter 1, verse 1. What do we read? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Do you see the certainty and the emphasis that is coming out in John's teaching? I'm not bringing something novel to you. I am bringing you the gospel that you heard from the very first day and continues unchanged onwards. Or verse 3 of chapter 1, where he writes, We proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's not fairy tales that I'm bringing you. It's things that have happened in history that are grounded in the acts of God, that have happened within space and time. Or in chapter 2, verse 13, Who is a liar, says John, whoever denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Or you look at chapter 4, verse 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit, for the spirit of Antichrist is abroad in the world. Or chapter 4, verse 6, He who is of God, what? Listen to us. 
Beloved, do you see what I'm saying to you? That the first great emphasis of this epistle, the first great test of true Christianity, is adherence to biblical doctrine. Doctrinal foundations are clearly and fundamentally laid. And adherence to that constitutes the first mark of being a member of the true and continuing church of God. Now isn't it a message for our own age, this ecumenical age in which we live, this age that despises and dislikes Christian doctrine, that hates the distinction of truth versus error? True Christianity, beloved, is distinguished by the things that it affirms. And that's why in our long series through the Westminster Confession, we saw that the reason for creeds and confessions is the garnering in and the gathering together of all the precious heritage of what God the Holy Ghost has revealed to his church, that we might stand strongly upon a biblical and doctrinal foundation. How do I know? true Christianity from false because the latter denies what was from the beginning. And as the Mormon knocks on your door and as the Jehovah's Witness comes and tries to sell you a copy of the Watchtower magazine, how do you know that he is in error? Because of the first test. He does not hold to that which we have seen, to which we bear witness, which was manifest to us from the beginning. True Christianity is distinguished by what it affirms. Now if you look more quickly with me at the moral test, in chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 and chapter 3 verse 9, there are many other passages to which we could go and will be going in the course of our studies, but these are just samples to whet your appetite. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, what is the meaning of John as he brings that theme before us, as he's already brought before us, the theme of doctrine in the very first verse of the very first chapter? Well, the relevance is this, that God is characterized not only by truth, but also by holiness. And that is the meaning of the description of God as light. So you see, what he's telling us is the second great profound truth that he will expand upon throughout the chapters of this letter. But those who have fellowship with God, beloved, not only stand upon the truth of God, the immovable revelation of God in Christ, but they also are people who walk in the light whose lives are characterized by holiness. Because he goes on to say, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with that God who is light itself. In other words, putting it in question form to you this evening, do you believe the truth? Then are you walking 
in the light. Now do you see what he's doing as I explained to you a few minutes ago? The great heresy and error that had come insidiously into the church was not only concerning the shifting of doctrinal foundations, the denial of the incarnation and the atonement of the cross, but it led into moral error as well. And the Gnostic error was that the way we live is unimportant anymore. And that's why you notice in verse 8 of the first chapter, he summarizes the teaching about God being light by saying to us, if we say we have no sin, we deny the fact, in effect, that we are Christians. So do you see what I'm laying upon you this evening? To walk in the light as a Christian is to say that I am a sinner that sin is serious in my life. And the false article of faith is to deny my sinnerhood and say I'm tired of it and I want to get out from being under it and it doesn't matter. And the mark, contrariwise, of the true Christian who is growing into maturity is the realization of the moral test of true Christianity that sin does cling closely to me, alas, and I will not deny its reality, and I will acknowledge that something has gone badly wrong with my life, but the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is continually cleansing me from all sin. Now, do you see what I'm saying? It's very hard for Christians to acknowledge their sins and shortcomings and their failures in the presence of your husband and your wife. It's very humbling to do it. In the presence of your children to say, I'm sorry, Johnny, I lost my temper with you. I spoke harsh words. But we need to do it. Because the moral test of true Christianity is that we are committed day by day and hour by hour and moment by moment to walk in the light. So we need to cultivate that attitude to the law of God that is expressed by the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation both day and night. How do I know that I'm a Christian? I seek purity and holiness and zeal to obey the revealed will of God in his most holy law. Now, thirdly, as I draw to a close, there is the social test. You read about it in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, a new commandment I give to you, says John, that you love one another. And verses 4, 7 through 8 explain that still more fully. Now, where real Christianity exists... There is real love of the brethren. What is the proof of my loving God this evening? It's not simply that I'm built on a good doctrinal foundation. It's not even simply that I know that my duty is to seek purity and holiness and a zeal for obedience to God. But, beloved, the third and most searching test of all in some ways is my relationship with fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Doesn't it become pointed and purposive there in that verse? If I as a Christian man or you as a Christian woman see a brother in need and shut up our bowels of compassion in the face of that need, how does the love of God dwell in me? How dare I say I am a Christian? And if we are a true church and a true congregation here this evening, there will be love expressed amongst us. Love especially to the brethren, but love to all men, even our enemies who despise us and persecute us and say all manner of evil against us falsely for his name's sake. And it's not enough to have the theological test and the moral test but we must have this test evident in our lives as well. Is there bitterness in your heart this evening? Is there anger against a brother? Oh, forsake it. I appeal to you in the bowels of Christ, as it were. You do not have to like someone else in the church. There is no scripture that anywhere commands me to like someone. But there are many scriptures that command me and exhort me to love my brother, even though there are things in him, his character, his personality, his lifestyle, his conduct, his speech, that I deplore. But we should love one another because this is required of us in the word of God. You know, as I finish, you can see it in a person's face, can't you? You've seen those Christians that seem to exude almost a holy aura of love. And it's not a superficial thing. It's not the smile you see on many Christians' faces today that is more like that of the Cheshire cat than anything you find in Scripture. But there is an aura of holy love that exudes from their personality. And you can see it as the testimonial of Christ's work in their hearts, the distinctive mark of Christian discipleship, as we read this evening in John 15, is that you love one another as I have loved you. Love and hatred are incompatible in the Christian's life. Well then, as I finish tonight, there are three tests. The theological test, the moral test, the social test. And it is my prayer, and I hope it will be yours, in these coming Lord's Day evenings. There will be many of them. But these three distinguishing marks of true Christianity, as applicable today in the church as then, as necessary today as then, may more and more abound in our lives as the test of true Christianity. Little children, wrote John, these things have I written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. How do I know that I am in Christ, that I possess the life that is eternal, flowing like currents through me now and enjoyed to the fullness in eternity itself? Not by any emotional experience, not by some feeling that comes and then goes again, that ebbs and flows, 
but by the doctrinal test, the moral test, the social test, being operative continually in my life. May God grant that this may become more and more true for all of us. For his name's sake, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in this age in which we live, when the church remarkably is facing the very same denials of biblical truth, we pray that the message of this book may stand out for us as in letters of fire and may be to us a living exhortation, an abiding reminder of the tests of true Christianity that should more and more distinguish are living in the body of Christ. May this indeed be the fruit of these studies in the lives of each one of us. For Jesus' sake, amen.